0: Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. Matthew uh, chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed Him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, as we closed our study last week, we looked at how Jesus, in announcing the kingdom of God to be at hand, cast out demons and healed many people. He was doing this to show that the kingdom of God was greater than the kingdom of Satan." Now, in doing our study, we also came across the topic of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to quickly recap some of that part of our study before we move on, since there, unfortunately, is a lot of confusion on the issue of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So uh, go to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 31. Mark 3, starting in verse 22. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he, speaking of Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he has cast out out demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against, blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has never sorry never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now I'm going to give you the definition of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit... And unfortunately, it's, well, fortunately and unfortunately, I'm going to explain what I mean by this. It's very simple. But unfortunately, Satan has been allowed to cause division over this, and he's made it into something that everybody's all confused about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to lay it all out for you tonight, scripturally, and I want you to see it's very, very simple. Here's the definition of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is simply rejecting the Holy Spirit's work in opening our eyes to the gospel. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is simply just rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit when He opens your eyes to the gospel. You see, it's the Holy Spirit of God who opens our eyes to the truth of who Jesus is, and it's the Holy Spirit who draws us to believe in Him for salvation. Go to John chapter 16. Let me show you what I mean as I kind of lay this all out for you here tonight. In John chapter 16, look at verses 7 through 11. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, Then he says, "...nevertheless, I tell you it's the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged." Now again, look at what Jesus says. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to be the one who convicts the world of their sin, their need for righteousness, and the fact that there's a coming judgment. That's the Holy Spirit's work. Jump back to chapter 15 look at one verse, verse 26. John chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Holy Spirit's going to bear witness about, about who? about Jesus. The Holy Spirit's job is to go out into the world and open the eyes of the people in the world about their sin, their need of righteousness, and the fact that there's a coming judgment, and oh, that that is all provided for through what Jesus has done and and, 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 and who He is. And we're going to see that laid out in just a little bit here. So understand, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is simply rejecting the Spirit's work when He calls us to salvation and opens our eyes to the truth of who Jesus is. If we say no to that, that's the only sin not forgiven. Let me explain. In the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, the Bible actually says that God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. In other words, at the moment that Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the whole world. At that moment, in God's side of the ledger, mankind's sin was covered because of Jesus. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that if you, everybody's going to heaven now. Now the message of the gospel is simply this. The message is not God's mad at you, but if you ask him to forgive you, he'll forgive you. The message is God loves you and he's already forgiven you. You just need to receive it. If you choose to not receive it, that's the only thing not already covered by the death of Jesus on the cross. Do you understand? All blasphemies and all these things, that all sins, are going to be forgiven except one. When Jesus' death on the cross paid for the sins of all mankind there's only one sin that wasn't covered. And that's when the Spirit of God opens your eyes to who Jesus is and you say no. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's very simple. But I'm going to explain it some more because unfortunately a lot of people teach a lot of stuff that gets out of whack. When Jesus performed the miracles that he did, he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there were many leaders of the Jews who knew that God was doing what he was doing through Jesus... But for varying reasons, they would not believe. They rejected the truth that they knew to be true. Go to John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher, come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, did Nicodemus say, "I know," or "We know"? He said, "We know." He was one of the leaders. He was one of the Pharisees. He's one of the Sanhedrin. He said, "Hey, Jesus, we know you're from God. Nobody can do the things you do unless God were with him." Go to John chapter 11. This is after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. In John chapter 11, verses 45 through 48, look at what the Scripture says. Now, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So, again, Did the Jews know that what he was doing was from God? Did the religious leaders know that what he was doing from God? Yes, we've already seen that in John chapter 3. And here it even becomes more clear. And he says, if we keep letting him do this, everyone's going to believe in him. They didn't want that because they were more worried about their place. Go to John chapter 12. Look at verses 17 through 19. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he, said he had done this, this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we're, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The, 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 the religious leaders are even more going, man, everybody's believing in him now. They knew what he was doing from God, and they didn't like it. Now go to John chapter 12. And look at verse 35. John 12, starting in verse 35. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Now when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Before we read any further, don't miss this. He did all, even though he did all these signs, they still would not believe in him. They chose not to believe. They knew that he was from God. They recognized the signs were clear. Yet they would not believe. And the Bible says that fulfilled prophecy. And who has believed what he's heard from us? They heard. By the way, remember Romans chapter 10, where it says, how can they hear unless someone preaches to them?" You go like three verses later from there. John verse 18, it says, have they not heard? Of course they did. His word has gone out into all the earth. They've heard. Who's believed what they've heard? And who, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He's shown them his power. He's shown them that it's him. Therefore, look at verse 39, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Don't miss that. Did they have a choice to believe? Yeah, they would not. But there came a point, and this is important, There came a point where God said, you've had enough opportunity. Remember, Jesus just said, believe while you have the light with you. They had the opportunity to respond. They chose to reject it, even though they knew it to be truth. They knew it to be from God. They rejected it. And God shut the door, if you will, to their ability to respond. And therefore, from that point on, they couldn't believe. Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, many of the, even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You know, the Bible's real clear that if we're not willing to confess him and acknowledge who he is before man, he won't acknowledge us before the father. Hear these people, did they believe these leaders of the Jews? Sure did. But would they acknowledge it? No. They love the fear of man or the praise of man more than the praise of God. Keep reading. Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes me, believes in me, not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me, that's going to be important in just a little bit, may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words, he already has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father have told me. Now, Jesus here says again, look, when you believe in me, you're not just believing in me, you're believing in the one who sent me. But it's important, he talks about believing in him. We're going to get to that in just a little bit. But he also says, look, the one who believes in me, though, has eternal life. And you need to respond while you have the light with you. Do we know when God has shut the door for any individual? No. We should be sharing the gospel with someone right to the very end, because I'm about to show you in just a second, God is still merciful. I'm going to show you examples of people who... Heard, didn't respond, but God gave them more opportunity. And I believe God gives many opportunities. We see that even the thief on the cross was making fun of Jesus. If you look at all the gospel accounts, both thieves were mocking him. Both thieves were making fun of him while they were on the cross with him. But by the end of the three hours that Jesus was there, one of the thieves changed his mind, and he was saved. God's merciful. He's patient. I think the Bible says he's not willing and wanting anyone to perish. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's just take it from a blasphemer's own words. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and look at verses 12 through 17. 1 Timothy chapter 1. <clears throat> look at verses 12 through 17. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a what? What? I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, and the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So, had Paul had the truth revealed to him? Of course he did. But he set out to oppose it. He blasphemed. Yet, God in his mercy gave him more opportunity. Go to Matthew chapter 26. Uh, As we read this little episode in Matthew 26, let me remind you that this guy we're going to read about, Peter, has already acknowledged that Jesus is the Christ. And remember, Jesus had already said to him, when when Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, "Good good for you, man. He said, good for you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood didn't open your eyes. My Father's opened your eyes. And then, as you know, what happens next with Peter is he goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he sees Jesus' glory. He meets Moses and Elijah, hears the voice of the the Father speak. You want to talk about seeing stuff, having his eyes open to the truth. Matthew chapter 26, look at verses 69 and following. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't even know what you mean. And when he went to the outer entrance, another service girl, servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Had Peter had his eyes opened? Did Peter deny after he had his eyes opened who Jesus was? Is Peter in heaven or hell? We know he's in heaven. He's one of the writers of the the Bible. God's merciful. So folks... Don't be one of these people that's freaked out by, oh, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Look, if you're concerned about whether or not you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it's obvious you haven't yet. Because you still care. You understand what I'm saying? The ones who have blasphemed, the ones who have had their opportunity and that door's been shut, they don't even care. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to die in a state of not responding to the gospel that has been revealed. That's the only, Jesus' death on the cross covered all sins. All you have to do is receive the forgiveness. Just imagine yourself, some of you are parents, some of you are grandparents. Imagine you have a kid or a grandkid, and they've done something against you, but you've forgiven them. But they don't receive that forgiveness, and it affects your relationship, because they just don't believe that you would really forgive them. And that just make you sad? To know that you've forgiven them? yet they don't receive it, and your relationship is never going to be this where where it should be? There are people that are all in hell who have been forgiven. They just never received it. Jesus' death on the cross paid for all sins. God was reconciling men to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. Colossians puts it this way. He was reconciling things in heaven, things on earth, and things under the earth. It's all reconciled on God's side of the ledger. That's why our message is be reconciled to God. Receive this forgiveness. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is simply dying in a state where you have said no to when the Spirit has opened your eyes to the truth of who Jesus is. That's it. Very simple. It's rejecting the gospel. People have turned it into way harder things than it really is. All right. Now. Let's go back to Matthew 5 and let's begin our study of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 12, Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 12, and we'll spend our time in that section tonight. <clears throat> now it says seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disi- when he sat down, the disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, as we mount move into the first of many of Jesus' lengthy discourses or teachings that are recorded in the book of Matthew, this one is famously known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, some of you may or may not know this. This is a long message. It's actually three chapters long. The Sermon on the Mount is all of chapter five, all of chapter six, and all of chapter seven. Now, any idea why it's called the Sermon on the Mount? Because he, he went up on a mountain. And so look at verse five. I mean, sorry, chapter five, verse one. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. I wanna pull out a couple of things from this real quickly. What crowds are we talking about? The ones that ones it. okay, but look at the verse just prior in context, the end of chapter 4. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. That's important. That's going to be important later on. The crowds were following from all over, from Galilee, from the Decapolis, the ten cities, which, by the way, I'm going to give you a little heads up, the Decapolis was mostly Gentile. The Decapolis was a Gentile stronghold. They were also from Jerusalem and Judea and the other side of the Jordan. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. I want you to keep in mind, the disciples are the first ones to follow him up the mountain. He sees the crowds and he goes up onto the mountain and he sits down. His disciples come. I believe the Bible teaches us that these great crowds followed as well. Go to to the end of chapter 7 with me real quick. The end of chapter 7. Look at verse 28. And when Jesus finished these things, as the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their, their scribes. So was Jesus just teaching his disciples or was he teaching crowds of people in the Sermon on the Mount? It started with his disciples, but the crowd grew and grew and grew. The crowd kept coming. Now, Jesus is not dumb. This is back in the day before Amplified Systems. I got my microphone so you can hear me better. And also so we can record and spread it around on the internet and all this. But listen, Jesus understood acoustics because He created the world. He understands science. He made it. And he, when He went up on the mountain and the crowd was all below Him, there around the Sea of Galilee, when the wind is blowing down the mountainside toward the water, you don't even have to yell. You just speak in a, in a clear tone and your voice is carried and lots of people can hear you. That's why sometimes, though, you'll see him get in a boat and go out on the lake. When the wind's blowing off the lake and the sound would carry across the water, all those people could hear him teaching from the lake. So Jesus goes up on a mountain. He sits down, which was a very common thing for rabbis. If you look at all the scriptures, you'll see that when rabbis, Jewish rabbis would teach, they would sit to teach. And so then Jesus goes, sits down. His disciples come. Again, do not hear twelve I'm going to remind you this over and over and over. Whenever you see the scriptures and it talks about the disciples, there were always more than 12. Let me give you an example. In Acts chapter 1, when the scripture says that they had to choose a replacement for Judas, they said, We need to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time from his baptism until his ascension. And there were at least two who were there, one of them was named Matthias. So we know of at least two that were with him beyond the 12 who had been with him the whole time from his baptism to his ascension. When Jesus is arrested in, in the garden right before the cross, there's a young man named John Mark who's grabbed and he runs out of his clothing and gets away. How did John Mark end up in the garden that night? He probably was in the upper room. Actually, Luke 8 says that there were women that traveled with him all the time, supporting them out of their own pocketbooks. I could go on and on and on. In John chapter 6, when Jesus said, "Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Around verse 60, the scripture says that there were many of his disciples who said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And they left following Jesus at that time. Of course, Jesus turns to the twelve and said, oh, you guys, you're free to go too. You don't have to stick around. Folks, I want you to understand that when it says the disciples followed him, it wasn't just the twelve. There's always more. But the crowd grew and grew and grew. And by the end of the teaching, the crowds were amazed. But Jesus didn't go to get away from the crowds. He went to a place where he could speak to them all. And acoustically, he could teach a lot of people at once. All right. Now, there is great debate over the purpose and the audience, though, of this sermon. In other words, what was Jesus really teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? And who was this teaching really for? If you do a study at all on the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to find all these different theologians, according to their predispositions of how they interpret the Scriptures, who have all different views on what the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount was. What was the actual teaching of the Sermon on the Mount? And who was he actually teaching it to and all that? Now, I believe that the Scriptures themselves will answer both of these questions. What was he actually teaching and who was it for? I believe the Scriptures will answer both questions for us tonight. All right. So some have said that Jesus teaching here was him laying out a set of rules to follow or maxims to live by in order to enter the kingdom. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount was just simply Jesus explaining, if you live like this, you can enter the kingdom. This is what a person enters the kingdom is going to live like. Now, unfortunately, that's not right, because that would contradict what Jesus himself taught. Let me show you what I'm talking about. The kingdom is not entered into... By just following a set of rules, is it? Actually, go back to Matthew chapter four and look at verse seventeen. There are some prerequisites for entering the kingdom. From the that verse seventeen of Matthew four, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, "What? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God is at hand. In order to enter the kingdom, you have to repent." You don't have to live nicely or live righteously to enter the kingdom. You've got to acknowledge you don't live righteously and repent to enter the kingdom. Go to Matthew chapter 5 and look at verse 20. Because the Bible also shows, Jesus teaching, that in order to enter the kingdom, you have to have perfect righteousness. Matthew chapter 5 verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jump down to verse 48 in chapter 5. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Was Jesus teaching that if you just follow these set of rules, you can enter the kingdom. And you live like this, that's who's going to be a kingdom person? No. He was saying, look, in order to enter the kingdom, you've got to first acknowledge that you can't do this and you need to repent and be willing to turn from your sin. Second of all, if you want to enter the kingdom, you have to have perfect. Righteousness. Keep in mind, when Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. What did the Jews hear when they heard that? That's impossible. We're in trouble. Because those Pharisees, they're nuts. I mean, they tithe on their mint and their cumin. They, they, do they, they won't even eat out of a certain cup unless they've washed their hands in a certain way. and all the, They do stuff that I would never be able to keep up. And they're the ones that are judging us and telling us how bad we are and how we're not even up to them. And we have to be beyond that to get into the kingdom? I'm never into the kingdom. Good. Because you can't. Unless you're perfect. So would Jesus be teaching, if you follow these rules, you can enter the kingdom? No. He also said that in order to enter the kingdom, you have to have faith like a child. Go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, look at verses 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? Keep in mind. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn... And become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You have to enter, you enter it only by faith. By the way, have you ever noticed children will believe, you tell them the tooth fairy gave them their money, they believe it. They have faith. They believe what you tell them. The Bible says you need to be Like a child. In order to enter the kingdom, you have to repent of your sin, which acknowledges you're not perfect. You have to have a righteousness that is perfect, and I've already acknowledged by my repentance that I'm not perfect. And I have to enter the kingdom by faith like a child. Faith in what? Oh, remember Jesus said something a little earlier? Whoever believes, in me. Go to John chapter 3. Sorry, yeah, John chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 15. Let's go back to that conversation with Nicodemus. John chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 15 now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? You want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. He says, I don't understand. I can go back in my mom's womb. I don't think she's going to like that. No. flesh gives birth to flesh. The spirit gives birth to spirit. I'm talking spiritually you need to be born again. I don't understand. And he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up, and whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Go back to John chapter 1. This being born again isn't the first time Jesus talked about it, even in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, look at verses 1 and following. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, Now, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. We know him as John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave right, gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see it? This light came into the world. This light made the world. This, this, this word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's Jesus. He's God. He's always been there. John the Baptist gave witness about the light. He wasn't the light. He was just giving witness about the light. And the light came and he revealed himself to his own people and his own people rejected him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become born again by God. How do you enter the kingdom of God? Do you enter the kingdom of God by living a certain way and you get to go into the kingdom? No, you enter the kingdom by faith in Jesus alone. Now, But you're going to see the Bible makes it very clear that it's faith in his sinless life, his perfect righteousness, his sacrifice on our behalf, him being punished for our sins, his rising from the dead. And when you acknowledge I'm a sinner, I can't be perfect before you. God, I turn from my sin and I acknowledge that you are a savior and I believe that I will have perfect righteousness but only because you give it to me because you give me Jesus's righteousness and I accept this by faith like a child I mean let's be honest you guys are putting a lot on the line by not trying to get to heaven any other way would you not agree for those of you that are sitting here tonight and listening online if your faith is in Jesus to get you into heaven you've put all your eggs into one basket have you not? If there is no other way, you're in good place. But what if you're wrong? You have put all your faith in Jesus making you righteous. Now, I know a man that came to my office one time when I was a pastor in Chicago, and he was trying them all. He goes, I've got a menorah in my house, and I I pray to Allah, and he was trying them all. He says, i got all my bases covered. And I had to explain to him, they all can't be right. He said, I just want to make sure I don't miss anything. Did he have faith alone in Jesus Christ like a child? No. But those are the ones who enter the kingdom. By the way, the ones at the end of the tribulation period who are going to be allowed to enter the kingdom because they gave the Jews water and visited them when they are in prison and took care of the Jews, they're not getting in because they were righteous. They're getting in because the only reason they're protecting the Jews is because they've come to believe that Jesus is who he is and he's coming back and those are his people. And that's why they're treating the Jews the way they do. It's always by faith, always by faith. Now, this is why Jesus couldn't have been teaching a set of rules to live by in order to enter the kingdom. Do you understand? It's impossible that that's what he was teaching. It goes against everything he taught. Actually, in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, it says this, no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. Nobody will be declared righteous by observing the law. Anybody understand why no one will be declared righteous by observing the law? Because the law demands What? Perfection. If you can't do it perfectly, you can't do it. And none of us can do it perfectly. There's no one righteous, not one. All right. Now, even though the kingdom was offered to the Jews first, there are some people that teach that this teaching, since we're at the beginning of the kingdom being offered, was only for the Jews and has nothing to do with or even for the church. There are a lot of people that teach that the kingdom sermon here, the Sermon on the Mount, since Jesus offered the kingdom to the Jews first, and we know then the Gentile, since this was the beginning of the offering of the kingdom, and it's to the Jew first and then the Gentile, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount only applies to the Jews. It doesn't apply to the church at all. I'm going to blow that up tonight as well. By the way, there are dispensationalists, and I'm m one too, and I hope you are as well. Actually, I believe everybody is, whether they acknowledge it or not. Dispensationalists are people that believe that God works in different ways at different time periods. You know, Hebrews chapter 1 says this, in the past he spoke through the prophets, now he's speaking through Jesus. Guess what? That's dispensationalism. Past he worked this way. You believe in an Old Testament and a New Testament? You're a dispensationalist. But there's all different levels and kinds of dispensationalists. There are ultra, ultra, ultra dispensationalists that actually think that most of the teaching of Jesus, even in the Gospels, really doesn't have to do with the church because he was still offering the kingdom to the Jews, and that's all for them, and the instructions for the church are different. I'm going to show you that that's not what Jesus was teaching. You're going to see that even though he was explaining the kingdom and offering the kingdom and laying the foundation for the kingdom, I'll explain all that in a little bit, The message of the Sermon on the Mount does apply to us. I'm going to show you that. Go to Matthew chapter 8. Look at verses 5 through 13. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Of course, the centurion, to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed, and the servant was healed at that moment. Here a Roman centurion comes to Jesus, a Gentile, he's not Jewish, and he says, heal my servant. Jesus says, I'm going to come do it. He says, you don't even have to come. I have authority. You have authority. You just say the word and it'll happen. I just speak and it happens. You speak. You have more authority. Just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus says, you know what? I haven't found this kind of faith in all of Israel. And then he says to everybody listening, oh, by the way, guys, um, in the kingdom, it's going to be more than just Jews. There's going to be people coming from the east and the west and the north and south. And they're going to sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom while the sons of the kingdom are going to be on the outside. So if Jesus here in Matthew chapter 8 is teaching that there's going to be Gentiles in the kingdom, is there teaching for us in the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, look at verses 22 through 30. This is Jesus. He's just finished reading in his hometown of Nazareth in the synagogue, Isaiah 61. And he he said how the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, that famous passage. And he said this has been fulfilled in uh, in their hearing. In verse 22 of Luke 4, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you'll quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill in which the, th- the town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Here he's in the synagogue. He reads the passage about the proph- prophecy about the coming Messiah, and he says, "This has been fulfilled." And they said, "Okay, if you're claiming to be the Messiah, do some of those miracles we've heard you've done in Capernaum. Do them here." And he says, "You know what? A prophet's not accepted in his hometown. Let me let me tell you something else, though, while we're talking." When there was a famine in Israel, God didn't send Elijah to a Jew. He sent him to a Gentile. And you know what? When Naaman was healed of leprosy, the Syrian, there were lots of Jews who had leprosy. But God healed a Gentile. When they heard that, they got so mad that they tried to kill him. Guess what? Jesus has been teaching all along that the kingdom is just for the Jews. So to say that this sermon is just for the Jews and not for us is not true. Again, in a little bit, I'm going to blow that up. Go to Matthew chapter 4 again. Look at it again at verses 25 through 5.1. Remind you what we looked at. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 25. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, was he giving it only Jews? No. The crowds came from Galilee, the Decapolis, which was a major Gentile stronghold, Jerusalem, Judea, beyond the Jordan. There was a whole maestro, Jew and Gentile, there listening to Jesus' teaching. Obviously, this message is for all who would enter the kingdom, both Jew and Gentile. Now, some people say, listen closely to what I'm about to say here, some people say that the Sermon on the Mount does not specifically lay out what what one must believe and do in order to be saved. They say it more clearly just describes what the life of one looks like who is saved. More on that in a little bit. But I would say that, yes, I believe the Sermon on the Mount does describe what the life of one who is saved looks like, but I disagree with those that say that the Sermon on the Mount doesn't tell you how to be saved. There are those who say it doesn't tell you how to be saved. I disagree with them, and I'm going to show you why. I believe the Sermon on the Mount does hint at how to be saved at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. I believe, as you're going to see as we break the Sermon on the Mount down, that yes, Jesus was teaching what the life of a saved person in the kingdom looks like. And of course, at the same time, showing you you can't do it unless You let God do it for you. But I believe that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually does, in a sense, give an altar call. But you have to be willing to listen to recognize the Spirit doing it. Were you about to say something or a question? Okay. Go with me to Matthew chapter 7. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at verses 13 and 14. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So here Jesus says, enter the kingdom by what? The narrow gate, or the door, if you will. Go with me real quick to John chapter 10. Go to John chapter 10, look at verses 1 through 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they'll flee from him, for they don't know the voice of strangers. This, is fi- this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door. I am the gate of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Listen, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Talking to the Gentiles again. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Jesus said, you enter by the narrow gate. He also said another time, I'm the gate. You enter by me. By faith in me. And he said again, go in by the narrow way. What did Jesus say in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, especially verse 6? I am the way and the truth and the life. I believe that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving them hints, an altar call. Enter by the narrow gate. I'm the gate. Go back to uh, Matthew chapter 7. And look at verses 21 through 23. The end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus said the only ones who enter the kingdom of God are the ones who do the Father's will. A lot of people say, we did a lot of stuff for you, God. He said, that's not what I'm talking about. So we now need to find out what is the Father's will, because I mean, preaching in His name and casting out demons sounds like pretty impressive stuff. A lot of us probably haven't even done any of that, but that's not good enough. So we need to know what the Father's will is. Go to John chapter six, real quick, verses twenty-eight and you'll see twenty-eight through thirty-five. You'll see the Father's will. John chapter six, verse twenty-eight. Then they said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What's the Father's will? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So again, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, enter the kingdom by the narrow gate. I'm that gate. He said, you need to enter the kingdom by doing the work of God, the will of God. What's the will of God? Believe in the one that he sent. And for the sake of time, if you went back to Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he then says, build your house on the rock. Who's the rock? Jesus. Jesus. Folks, I believe that the Sermon on the Mount does tell you how to be saved. But as you're going to see in our study of it, I also believe that most of it is laying the foundation of the fact that this is a picture of what a saved person's life looks like. And you can't do this on your own. This has to be given to you. And that you're going to be, see, become very, very clear in our study. So the Sermon on the Mount's true purpose was to lay the groundwork spiritually to prepare people's hearts to be able to enter the kingdom. As you'll see, Jesus' teaching on righteousness goes so deep that if one one's, is truly honest, they'll realize they cannot attain the righteousness of those who would enter the kingdom. But if we realize this, we have our hearts prepared to enter the kingdom by faith alone in God's provision for our sin and for our lack. All right? Now, you already know the scriptures that talk about how you need to trust Jesus as your Savior, so I'm going to skip over those three. And what we're going to do in the time we have left is kind of do something real fast, but kind of fun. Even though this sermon in Matthew 5-7 through was given to the Jews and the Gentiles, and even though its purpose is to prepare people's hearts for entering the kingdom by faith, there's still much here in this message for those of us who are in the church. Those of us who have already entered the kingdom. We can, we can say, look, if it's purpose is to prepare people's hearts for the kingdom, to show what the life of a person in the kingdom looks like, we're already there. We've already been given righteousness. We're already in the kingdom. We're going to rule and reign in the kingdom. What, what's the point for us to study the Sermon on the Mount? Oh, I'm about to show you there's a lot here for us. You're going to see that the Sermon on the Mount's teachings paralleled all throughout the New Testament for the teachings for the church. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. Now we're gonna have to move fast, but I think we can do it. In 1 Peter chapter 3, look at verse 4. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, Jesus is speaking through Peter and he says, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Here when he's talking about how ladies should be dressing when they come to church, he says you shouldn't dress in such a way that draws the attention to yourself. How you need to dress, how you need to adorn yourself is with a gentle spirit. A humble spirit. Then he goes on and talks about how Sarah called her husband Lord and all this stuff. Blessed are those who have a broken spirit, a humble spirit, a poor spirit, if you will. We'll get into that more in detail next time we come together. But I want you to see this. That whole idea of that humble, gentle spirit is teaching in the New Testament as well. He then says in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Go to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 verses 4 through 10. James chapter four, verse four. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So he's talking to Christians here. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and what? Mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. As Christians, we still have to have an attitude of grief over our sin, even though we're forgiven. We shouldn't have a flippant attitude that says, hey, it's already forgiven, I'm already. it's all under the blood, I'm good, it's okay. No, the Bible says that even though we're forgiven, we still can grieve the Spirit and quench the Spirit. And when we do that, we need to have an attitude of mourning and grieving over that. Anybody here still sin? Does anybody like it? If you're truly born again, it grieves you when you do. The Bible says, blessed are those who mourn. That teaching's for us too. Blessed are the meek or the gentle. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and to authorities and to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, and to be what? Gentle. And to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. The Bible says that those of us who are born again, because we have been given God's mercy and His righteousness, we should be gentle people who aren't cantankerous and contentious. But you know what's sad? As a pastor for years, I've dealt with so many people that spend most of their time complaining and griping and trying to get their way, fussing about the music, fussing about the air conditioning, fussing about how so-and-so treated them wrong. And all this attitude that is supposed to be evident of those of us who are truly born again that are just gentle and quiet and we trust the Lord and we're grateful for for our salvation, we don't see that attitude in many in the church. Blessed are the meek. How much meekness do we see in the church? We'll get to more of that in time. Blessed are those in hunger and thirst for righteousness. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, we're to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Did you know the Bible says that we're to hunger and thirst for righteousness even after we're saved? Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 24. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to what? Righteousness. We say no to sin and we live to righteousness by his wounds you've been healed. By the way, again, I don't have time to get into it. The passage that talks about by his wounds you've been healed is talking about spiritually. Yes, God does still heal physically, but you're not guaranteed physical healing because of Jesus' death on the cross. If that were the case, if everybody believed right, no one would die. And when you look at the context of that all through the scriptures, by his wounds you've been healed is tied to the fact that you've been healed spiritually. Let me show you one more place. Go to Romans chapter 6. Look at verses 12 and 13. Finish strong. You're going to make it. I'll share something with you at the very end that's going to blow your mind. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members or your body parts to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your body parts to God as instruments for righteousness. Hungering and thirst for righteousness isn't just for the lost person. Hungering and thirst for righteousness is supposed to be us as well. Again, the Sermon on the Mount is deep. It covers a lot of stuff, and it's for the church. Blessed are the merciful Matthew chapter 5, verse 7 is blessed are the merciful. Go to Jude, verses 17 through 23. Jude, verses 17 through 23. And I'm proud of you because no one's asking what chapter anymore. Blessed are the merciful, Jude, starting in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there's going to be scoffers, Blessed are the merciful, those who give mercy, because they'll receive mercy. That's for the church as well. The Bible says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. You know Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 says this, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, think on these things. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Everything Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount here is applying to the church as well. The Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers. Real quickly, James chapter 3. Go to James chapter 3. You're just there in 1 Peter. Back up just a little bit. James chapter 3. Look at verse 8, uh, 13 through 18. Who's wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast or be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and eat every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and the harvest of righteousness is sown by in peace by those who make peace. We shouldn't be seeking our own way. We should be seeking to make peace. But I'll get on to all that when we go a little bit deeper in our study. Two last things. The Bible says, blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, and it says, blessed are the persecuted. Go to 2 Timothy. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So was Jesus preaching to the Jews or the Gentiles or the church? The answer is yes. He's preaching to all of them. He's preaching to the Jews who needed to be saved. He's preaching to the Gentiles who needed to be saved. He's preaching to the church. One last one. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, he said, Great is your reward in heaven. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Where? Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. When I finished my study, I looked at all this and I thought, man, that's a lot. I had nine pages of notes. And then I counted how many passages of scripture we were going to look at tonight. Does anybody want to take a wild guess on how many passages of Scripture we covered tonight? 48. You did good. I love you. See you next week.